Welcome back to another episode of Pulled Up Short. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're very pleased to have Andy Hargreaves, a professor at Boston College, and Allison Scarrett, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Andy is going to speak to us today about social class and the importance of paying attention to social class as we try to understand the forms of social organization that are creating injustices and pathologies in the world today. Andy, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, You're welcome, Stanton. It's a pleasure. So please, can you give us a sense of how you're going to pull us up short with this notion of social class as something we've overlooked? Well, I guess probably in tune with just about everybody who is involved in this podcast and probably listening to it, I've for many years, all my adult life, had a passion for equity, for social justice, and for inclusion in education. And what I've been aware of is in the community of people who are concerned about this within the United States, but increasingly actually also outside the United States, uh, that has been equated with uh, diversity of, um, of, of, of many different kinds, uh, marginalization of many different kinds, and uh, an oppression of, of many different kinds. And especially with white privilege, which is uh, particularly important, and I have uh, enormous uh, empathy with as an issue. But white privilege and the discussion around that has tended at the same time to exclude equally important issues of wealth privilege. And wealth privilege is exemplified, for example, in the fact that uh, 26 people 23 of whom are men, own more than 50% of the world's wealth, which leaves everyone else scrabbling for the rest. Uh, By the way, the wealthiest people are not all white. Uh, Most billionaires, uh, the majority of billionaires, actually live in uh, China. So alongside, not instead of, but alongside issues of white privilege, Uh, I believe we also, as a uniting, not a divisive force, need to deal with issues of wealth privilege and therefore issues of social class that are defined by wealth, that are defined by income, and that are defined by the kind of work that we do. We do, to some degree, uh, get at some of that when we talk about poverty as a major form of disadvantage and marginalization. But if we equate class only with poverty and not with, for example, many kinds of people who do more manual work, work with, work, work with their hands, then poverty becomes the only identity you have to leave behind in order to be successful, which means your class, uh, if you grew up a working class, is something you have to abandon as an identity if if you want to succeed. So in part because of my own background, Stanton, uh, that I've written a memoir about uh, recently, as you know, called uh, Moving, uh, which is about the struggle for social mobility or what Americans would understand as as the American dream. Uh, This this memoir is about my own experience, uh, white, uh, working class, northern, uh, British, Uh, which is very different from Southern British, by the way, Um, 1960s, uh, growing up in that environment. 
and um, not as a positionality that that separates people like me or should separate people like me from other kinds of marginalized positionalities. But really, uh, the memoir is about how we can bring together and find narratives, inclusive narratives, uh, that involve all young people who struggle because of circumstances in their life of disadvantage, marginalization, and oppression. And that instead of having a narrative of diversity and inclusion of many kinds, but not class, that occupies the center and the left, and a narrative of economic disadvantage or labor that is increasingly being occupied by populism and and by the right, that we can find and should struggle for a way to bring together everyone who struggles understanding their differences, but also being galvanized by what they have in common for a better education, better life, and a better world for all of us. I see. So you're saying that there's been a lot of focus recently on unjust disadvantage that's emphasized identity categories, racial categories, ethnic categories, and you're sympathetic to these movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, and you think that sort of unjust disadvantage is a reality that we have to fight to overcome. But you're saying social class is something else that sometimes is ignored or overlooked in these conversations about injustice. And you're saying that social class is in some ways similar to other forms of disadvantage, oppression, discrimination suffered by members of various marginalized or racialized, minoritized groups. But you're saying in other ways, social class is a little bit different as a form of identity that leads to disadvantage. And can you tell me a little more about why you think social class is often overlooked? Why is it that people don't think of it? I know this isn't true in the British context, but in the American context, it's definitely true that people will shy away from emphasizing social class, even people who are very concerned to address questions of justice and disadvantage. Why do we not focus on it in the same way? Well, that's a fascinating question, Stanton. I'm not sure there's a complete categorical certain answer that anyone has found. But many people, particularly recently, have written about, uh, Americans have written about uh, what they call class cluelessness, which is how Americans are comfortable talking about all kinds of disadvantage, but but not about social class. But the American dream lives lives very lives very large within the American imagination. The fact that uh, people can start from any circumstance, any background, any any culture, any accent, any language, and uh, with hard work, application, and some talent, can be anything that they want to be. Uh, but the truth is, is in terms of the developed economies, uh, the United States continues to be one of the most unequal countries in the world. It has some of the lowest rates of uh, social mobility, which is the chance to move up from your class of origin defined by income or wealth or job of of, of your parents to, to something else. But, but the dream lays very powerfully the idea that anyone can make it. Uh, and on, on the left and right, people will say, you can be anything you want to be, follow your dreams, which is 
actually a cruel lie for for many many uh, young people. If you look at the social statistics, not at the individual psychological uh, narrative. So it's the compelling narrative of continuing to believe in the American dream that makes it very hard uh, for people to talk about social class, unless there are manifest obstacles in the way. Uh, that are clearly there by by color or by whether you're a, an immigrant or a refugee, for example. You said something very interesting about social class earlier, that it's the only minoritized identity that you have to give up in order to move forward. And I can see how you mean that. I guess there are some other identities where you do have to give some things up, but with social class, it's sort of definitional, as you say, if you define it in terms of income. So if you want to move up in income, then you have to leave behind who you used to be. You mentioned your memoir, which is great. I really enjoyed it. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit personally about how you struggled with that need to give up your identity as a working class person as you moved ahead in your career. What did that feel like? Can you share some of the moments that you went through? Of course, I'd be glad to. One issue to understand that that's really important is to think about um, how much do we try, as we should, to pay attention to uh, what kind of characters are in our literature, what kind of parents are represented by uh, race, by whether they're LGBTQ, uh, you know, whether they're uh, dads who are married to each other or mums who are married to each other. And we think more and more about how to address those issues in our curriculum. Uh, we have uh, Black History Month, which we should, and it's right. And now we're thinking about how to do that in relation to other groups that we focus on. Uh, my own, I have five grandchildren, all of whom are uh, mixed race and part uh, Asian in terms of heritage. So paying attention to those things in the curriculum in north of the border in uh, Canada, we pay huge attention now at long last to indigenous issues and indigenous oppression uh, within within everybody's curriculum down to a very, very uh, young age. So this is important, but we should ask, where in the curriculum is any attention to labor, to labor history? Where is any attention to children's labor rights, to the labor conditions of uh, of young people in other countries as well as in the United States? Do we, should we, can we treat vocational education as having equal status and uh, value as other kinds of, uh, of, of college education within our society? Or where's the history of the labor movement, of the Polish solidarity movement led by women as much as by men? For example, I could continue with this, but, but where are working class people in, in, in the books that we read and that we look at? And class has many colors, by the way. I think we've seen with our essential workers during the pandemic, our bus drivers, our, our shop workers, our cleaners in hospitals, in stores, that, uh, that class has I hope now we're all starting to see when we talk about class, we're not talking about the white working class, but we're talking a class that has many colors that can be, many identities that can be brought together. And my experience of this, I guess, through my memoir of growing up in 
a northern English mill town in the 1960s, um, which is, by the way, now one of the prime places of Brexit and of uh, and and of uh, xenophobia and and fear of the other who who comes from outside to to threaten us. Growing up in this community before before really immigration started to move in in in, in a big way into our community, uh, I experienced living on one side of town and going to high school on the other side of town. Until the age of 11, I went to a local primary school, mainly for working class kids like me, and had utterly inspirational uh, teaching, uh, which we'd recognize now as being a whole child. My teacher understood who I was, even though I was a bit quirky, probably like everybody in this podcast, and um, I was able to work with that, but but not let me be too much of it at the same time. So it interfered with other people and their aspirations and educational needs too. And then I went to high school and uh, on the other side of town, selected for the top uh, 20% of boys in my in my town. And uh, first year at high school was great. My my report showed me I was in the top class of three in the top school in the town. Uh, and in some subjects, I was top. I was a top boy in the top class in the top school. So in terms of social mobility, everything looked, looked pretty good. And then from about the age of 13, 14, you look at my school reports as my wife and I did a few years ago. And suddenly you find I'm not top, but I'm 26th, 25th, 27th. And the comments on the reports are about uh, disappointment or lack of effort or things of a similar kind. And, And my wife and I stood in the basement looking at these reports. And I said to her, I wonder what went wrong then? And she said, it's obvious. Your dad died. So when I was 12 years old, Uh, My father died of his third heart attack. My mother was widowed at the age of 43. She had three boys to raise. I was the youngest. The others were already moving into factories. And she worked three jobs in, uh, in a local store, cleaning people's houses and looking after people's children. And for a while, she held it together. But then it became too much. She collapsed with what was then called her nerves or a nervous breakdown. Uh, we we now call like serious mental health uh, depression. She had anorexia. She wouldn't eat. Uh, she came close to starving. She had agoraphobia. She wouldn't leave the house for months on end. She became addicted to barbiturates to help her sleep. It took her two or three years to uh, come off them. And suddenly, like many kids today, I think, who people listening to this podcast, if your teachers will know, and instead of my mum being in charge of us, I suddenly realised I was in charge of her, actually, for the rest of life, pretty much. And so I would never appear at school for months on end until 11 o'clock in the morning, having cleaned the house, uh, vacuumed up, uh, gone and bought food, so that when my grandmother came up, she could try and get try and get the day going. And my school never talked to me about this because we were like repressed British, uh, a male, and you didn't discuss those things with, with boys at that time. But my main classes I missed were my maths classes. And even into my 50s, I had phobias and anxiety dreams about, about mathematics classes 
in schools. So there was a lack of connection of my school to see my family struggles, not only to in a way care for them, but I would say later when I applied to university and didn't have the same time to get involved in clubs and societies and extracurriculars and now we'd say internships as other people, that in a way my family circumstances were a deficit. But children like me today, actually, should be able to put on their forms when they apply for college, that they show leadership in their family by looking after brothers and sisters or parents who are unable to look after themselves. And this was then compounded by uh, two other things. One was curricular differences. So in the English system, when you're between 16 and 18, you take three subjects before, no more, before you go to university. And one of those for me was history. But the history that I studied was, you know, is very colonialist. Um, I, gosh, I wish we could have decolonized that curriculum uh, because it, it was about uh, popes and presidents and prime ministers and generals. It was a history of great men of the British Empire, by and large. And it meant absolutely nothing to me in my working class life in the north of England. And so I came very close to failing the history a test exam the first time round. It was not enough to get me into college. I had to stay another year and go through that again. And when my lessons began in exactly the same way they had in the previous year with a different teacher, the only answer was to go off to the library and teach myself questions that were on the exam but not taught to me on social and economic history, the history of the many, of agriculture, of the Industrial Revolution, not the history of the few. And this is one reason why of late, Stanton, I've become very interested in student engagement, engagement with learning, because my school uh, gave me what was for my culture, a very disengaging kind of learning. So all this, I think, draws our attention to when you live on one side of town with one kind of life and go to school on the other side of town. And by the way, this is often what magnet schools or schools of choice do to their kids. They take them out of their neighborhoods and they, they, they put them, they put them somewhere else. So charter schools, for example. Uh, what it is like to be, you can't see it in terms of your appearance. You look at me now, of course, and you say manifest white privilege. But as a child, even though you'd look like everyone else, your experience is totally different in terms of working class culture uh, versus uh, middle class culture managing a different curriculum, having a different kind of family life, having to negotiate the local gangs uh, when you're the only person in your neighborhood at age 16 still in a school uniform and still going to the other side of town. And these, I think, in a very different way, I've had people write to me who are of manifestly totally different backgrounds, uh, people of color, uh, people from different countries who say they resonate absolutely, if you like, with these primal themes of, of feeling you grow up in one kind of culture, you go to school that represents another kind of culture, and there's totally insufficient effort to be responsive to the difference between the two. That's great. So you're saying that social class in some ways is analogous to other identities that are minoritized racialized that are treated as other. And 
it involves some similar kinds of culture clash. But you also say that class is in some ways different because it cuts across different groups. So there are people who are disadvantaged in multiple ways. Tell me a little bit about the implications of this. One thing that we confront nowadays is we confront people who, even though they're a member of one group that is disadvantaged, that they still find themselves pitted against or thinking unpleasant thoughts about another minoritized group. And you've done a great job of articulating the dignity and the rationality behind the kind of working class life that you experienced and that others experience. How do we engage with the fact that people sometimes see themselves as opposed to other groups that in some ways have gone through similar kinds of experiences? Is that inevitable? Is that something that we just have to live with? Well, there's a personal challenge and a leadership challenge there, I think. I, th I think the personal challenge uh, for all of us is a challenge of suffering, really. That, that when we have experience of suffering in our own lives and in our own background, that it, it should not only draw us to people who've had as close as possible exactly the same kind of suffering and exactly the same kind of identity. And by the way, we, we don't. Even then, we find we don't have exactly the same identity. I think uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and Patricia were, were, were very good at this in talking about intersectionality. Uh, when, you know, we don't have like one identity, we have many things. So, um, I'm, it would surprise you, shock you, but I'm actually quite a little bit ADHD. And in fact, I'm adult diagnosed ADHD. I've been counseled as an adult for ADHD. And in school, this manifested itself as messiness, uh, disorganization. Uh, lateness, interrupting people over time because I knew what they were going to say. So why on earth should I wait for them to finish their sentences? And, uh, and this is going on at the same time as having a class identity. So, so the, what we have to avoid is to think that, that if we're gay, we are the only thing people we can identify with or, uh, or bond with or unite with or other people who are gay or if they're black, black, or if they're working class, working class, and so on. But the, the rather the uh, point of suffering, and I've experienced it, or injustice, is, is to, to draw on that primal experience of injustice, suffering, and marginalization, and then find ways to empathize. Uh, actually, Adam Smith talked about sympathy, which is more than empathy. Well, sympathy is not pity. Sympathy is feeling with, not feeling for. And, and I think one of our great quests has to be to feel with people who, who also struggle, who also have challenges, but not necessarily exactly the same kinds of challenges as us. So I, I think that's the personal uh, not, not to look at other people who have a different one and say, well, you know, you think you have it hard, but look at me. You know, my, my suffering was so much greater or, or more important than yours. But to use it as a source of uh, connection, to create a movement, really, ag against disadvantage and marginalization of all kinds. And the task of leadership, which we've not quite yet achieved, almost anywhere in America, is to be able to articulate that 
as a narrative and, and not to fear uh, groups we might upset or offend. That if we, for example, uh, dignify the working class to be driven by fear, that then we would offend people who might think we're defending the white working class and its racism and its xenophobia. And so therefore we avoid talking about class and we talk about poverty or indeed we talk about the middle class instead of talking about the working class. All identities pretty much are flawed and and not, not perfect. So as well as uniting with other people, I think it's important that all of us have humility about the imperfections of our own identities. Kimberly Crenshaw uh, pointed out that there had been a silencing of the literature and the research indicating that in America, the highest rates of reported domestic violence do not occur, not levels, but rates, do not occur in heterosexual relationships. And Crenshaw herself, the the queen of intersectionality, said there had been a repression of this data because of fear of the consequences. We know in the trans community um, and in the feminist community that there are great conflicts now between different generations of feminists as as to what is a woman and, and whether biology is any part of that definition or whether it is purely a cultural phenomenon. This is not agreed, it is disputed, sometimes sometimes quite, quite bitterly. And we know that if we're trying to have religious tolerance and religious inclusion, um, there are many religions which are uh, misogynistic and which are homophobic. But we tend to silence most of these imperfections, and I think we all need to have a little humility about the imperfections of our own identities. And once we have that humility, the bonding with others is easier to do rather than setting ourselves against each other. And the task of leadership, as I really started to say, is is to find a narrative that can do that, that, that can understand the flaws, that can acknowledge the imperfections, that can build on the pride, that can recognize the injustice, and that can do that in a way that brings us like our essential workers, understanding our essential workers in many colors, identities, backgrounds, not not, not just one, so that we can move in common cause to create equity on an economic basis as well as on a cultural basis. Very useful. So this has been helpful in getting us to engage with questions of social class, which in the U.S. context, at least, is something that we will often background, as you say, for fear of upsetting others, not a category that we're as comfortable with. At this point, I'd like to ask Alison Skerritt. Alison, if you could come in and ask Andy a couple of questions. Thank you, Stanton, and thank you, Andy. I I really enjoyed um, listening to uh, the exchange between the two of you. And um, Andy and I, you know, we've had many conversations, um, really, about social class. And um, we've also talked about the intersections. You've been mentioning Crenshaw's work quite a bit, intersections among uh, social class and gender and, and race. And I would add in immigration as well. And so as you were speaking, I 
I really um, enjoyed hearing you sort of unpack uh, what defines social class. And so you mentioned um, income and wealth. You also mentioned one's occupation and um, then also the uh, occupation or social class of one's parents. And I, I wanted to hear you talk a bit about, you know, this concept or issue of habitus. And so, right. And so you you have lived this sort of journey of um, moving from the working class into, I'm not sure what class you would identify yourself with right now. You don't have to say. Um, oh, oh, I'm I'm upper middle class now. There is no okay. question. Th- thank you to 15 years of working at Boston College and being being paid uh, a very decent salary. <laughs> okay, great. Um, and so, uh, and we've talked about this a little bit, thinking about, um, you know, what constitutes the habitus of the middle class or the upper middle class, if you will. And and you've been talking about how um, people may leave behind uh, particular identities. And I want to challenge that a little bit. Um, you probably know where I'm going with this. And so I'm interested in, in your story or some thoughts around um, the issue of how uh, as people move up in terms of income or occupations, um, if you will, because that's where social mobility can really um, sort of um, enhance those opportunities. How do we think about this issue of habitus and and cultivating particular types of um, ways of being and valuing and knowing and doing that are associated with different classes? Thanks, Alison. That that is uh, it's not just a question. It's it's really like a position that you're that you're setting out, which I think is is really important. Um, there's a book a number of years ago, and I can't remember the author now, uh, called Strangers in Paradise, and is is a book of narratives of biographies. It's many years ago. Of uh, they're all men who work in the academy in universities and come from working class backgrounds themselves. And it, it's a book I identify with enormously because it it describes how even when they're president of the university, they feel like they don't really fit. And and I've spent all my life feeling this with no disrespect to Boston College or any of the other several universities I've worked in in three different countries. The feeling has always been exactly the same, that somehow... I I don't really belong here. And the way people describe it is in terms of culture, which is a particular kind of of middle-class culture within the universities that has to do with uh, many things. Uh, Directness versus indirectness, uh, bluntness rather than sophistication or illusions or hinting of, uh, of speech. I find that even and actually, especially in America, uh, talk to anybody and within three minutes, uh, even if they hated being there, they'll let you know that they went to Harvard uh, or Stanford or another Ivy League uh, school. And and the more left people go, the more likely they are to to mention that their school and their Ivy school as, as their Ivy League school as part of their uh, identity. So... Uh, you, you talked about habitus and uh, culture, and I've given you one tiny example of it. And uh, there's there's much about uh, there's much about my memoir that one of the reasons I wrote it is really 
to honor uh, the culture that that people like my mother were were part of and um and that I grew up with um it's 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 laughing out loud rather than sniggering and giggling it's um it's it it's about being direct it's it's about being honest and transparent it's it's about working hard it is about celebrating your successes openly and raucously it is not about fake humility i have a piece at the moment we're recording this uh coming out um next week in the washington post and op-ed that is about social and emotional learning and uh of course many people want social and emotional learning as a response to the mental health crisis and a response to covid-19 but america compared to the rest of the world has gone with social and emotional learning rather than well-being in society and in life and the thing about social and emotional learning the critique of it including from african american groups has been that it privileges a white middle class repressed male form of emotionality in terms of empathizing with others emotions especially being able to regulate your emotions to have self regulation uh, grit uh, mindfulness and and so on rather than raucous laugh out loud emotions so there there's been uh, and there's a bit of a change in social and emotional learning what's called transformational to be a bit more responsive to racism and issues of of diversity but the whole thing of habitus you describe is is one that has a racial dimension and one that has a class dimension because it it's not only privileging white ways of being as the perfect emotional neutral universal way to be but it's also privileging middle class or even upper middle class uh ways of being we might even say barack obama ways ways of being as as kind of repressed understated uh polite not not very direct and and so on so i think there is a massive issue of habitus here as you say that that can marginalize people by class and by race and by other kinds of identity as well thank you so much andy um i really appreciate your thoughts um on that i uh, i think i can ask one more question i want to uh sort of um go back a bit to intersectionality and 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 talk some more about about race um we you know listening to you in in stanton there was um quite a stimulating conversation about uh different minoritized identities and the issue of uh for example how uh people who are uh, minoritized in multiple ways may still um have difficulty being empathetic uh toward others or even sympathetic um toward others who are uh perhaps trying to gain justice um for um a particular uh group with an identity that um that they also claim all right and so i'm i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this issue of uh racial minoritized uh people or or groups um specifically and how that may intersect or does intersect um with social class because yes we do have multiple identities but uh the research tells us that uh 
in America, for example, that, that race is, is often the most sort of salient identity, whether that is um, something that is salient for the individual or whether that is an identity that is sort of um, that they ha- have been sort of positioned to take up. Um, and so thinking of your story, for example, in my story, I think we would see uh, some some uh, differences that um, are not, you know, strictly about social class, but but then you know, race is actually quite central to um, to those narratives. Um, so, for thinking, for example, how I may be sort of positioned um, by people in society as a black woman, without necessarily taking account of whether I am working class, middle class, or upper middle class, and how that might really sort of affect our opportunities if we even went back to habitus to, in, in sort of feeling that one can own or develop or cultivate a particular taste, or whether we're looking at a situation where we need to um, think about, you know, the whole concept of class itself, middle class, upper middle class, and how, how those elements um, may change or may need to adapt given that we have this opportunity for economic mobility, right? Um, So how might we disentangle economic mobility from uh, social class mobility per se? Thanks for that analysis, which which I think is is really important. And um, uh, I'll I'll begin responding to it with a very curious example, but I hope pretty quickly you won't see it's curious. Uh, my, My colleague and friend from Boston College, Dennis Shirley, and I, um, have a have a weird passion as as well as uh, writing, and that is walking the two thousand plus miles of the Appalachian Trail uh, in the United States in sections, and and we love that. It's outdoors. It's in nature. Uh, there's so much environmentally that, that you could say that's positive about it. And we almost never see. We've we've now walked almost half of the Appalachian Trail, over a thousand miles. And it is a great rarity to see anyone on the trail, and you see many, who are ethnically or racially anything other than white or Asian by background. And I'm followed on Twitter by a group called Black Girls Hiking. And and they've written some very interesting, they're advocates for getting black girls hiking. And, And they've written about, you know, why? Why don't why don't more black girls go go hiking compared to white girls or Asian girls or boys? And uh, they go through many reasons for this, but uh, some of it's economic, which is uh, many of them just can't afford to like throw up their jobs for a week and uh, go out and you know buy the camping gear and so on. But some of it is to do with when I walk on the road towards the trail with a backpack, nobody will stop me. In fact, somebody might give me a ride if I'm lucky. Um, but if if I'm black and walking towards the trail with a backpack, people will stop me because they might think I'm up to I'm up to no good. So so the visible part of visible minority or majority sometimes is is uh, I think I'm totally with you. Is is really important to recognise, really important to understand, and uh, a, a huge aspect of marginalisation that I've never encountered, and 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 never will. 
And then there's invisible uh, marginalization that isn't so, will not just take class, but autism, for example, or Asperger's. You can't always immediately see, um, you know, looking at someone, are they autistic? Do they have Asperger's? How, how does that form? Or even people, you know, LGBTQ. Somet- sometimes it's obvious in terms of stereotypical ways of expressing that identity, but often it's not. And, and so the, the problem of invisibility can, can carry challenges with it as, as well as visibility. And then, as you say, Alison, once, once you accept the visible part, it, it's important not to singularize it in a way and to say, that's the only important thing about me. Or what Irving Goffman, uh, a Canadian American uh, from uh, the 1960s and 70s, um, when he talked about stigma and how people are stigmatized who are, uh, who are disabled or who have been in prison, that it, that it doesn't become what he called your master characteristic, which is the only thing that matters and the only people, way that people uh, react to you. So, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm totally empathetic with and indeed curious about uh, how what it what it means to be to to both have a visible very visible part of your identity that that either marginalizes you on the one hand or privileges you on on the for people like me privileges you on the other and 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 then to somehow get people to understand or accept it's not the only thing that marginalizes you or not the only thing that privileges you or one or the other that sometimes the intersections might mean you're marginalized in some ways but privileged in others and um and and, and i think the task of i think this is so important that the task of leadership in a school in a faculty of a country is is somehow how, how can we steer and, and facilitate important but difficult conversations uh, about those very issues in, in, in ways that ultimately bring about solidarity amongst us rather than division amongst us. I, th- I think the issues you've raised, are, are, it's, uh, and I know that you, know, you, you and I know each other well and we, 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 we talk about these privately, I think, as, as well as we do here. And it's so important to be able to do that. Thank you so much, Andy. Thank you for joining us for this episode with Andy Hargreaves and Alison Skerritt. We have two more episodes in this, our second season. Next week, we'll have Ken Gergen on whether individuality is in fact impossible. And then the week after, Karen Nissenbaum on Destiny. Check out our partner at the American Anthropological Association website, AmericanAnthro.org. Please subscribe to Pulled Up Short wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Pulled Up Short. Thanks for being with us.